Welcome to Streaming Thoughts, where we stream our thoughts on movies, TV, and all things nerdy. I am Daniel. And I am Nathan. And welcome to our podcast. All right, Nathan, so what are we talking about today? Oh, man, did you hear that the NBC CEO is in a little bit of a uh, chicken fight with AMC Theaters? What? What's that about? All right, so the NBC CEO, Jeff Schell, was looking at the records that Trolls World Tour set, which is about $100 million in 20 days. First of all, I I like the fact that you brought this all the way back to Trolls World Tour. (laughs) He said this was so successful that all Universal movies will be simul-released, video on demand, and in theaters. So hold on. What you're saying is all of these movies that are going to be released by Universal Studios are going to come out in theaters and on digital platforms day one. Yes, that is what Jeff Shell said. Wow. And AMC, the biggest theater movie chain in the United States, I believe, responded to this by basically saying any movie you released video on demand and the same day as the theatrical release... AMC will not play it. Wow. But I mean, hold on. What's the rationale behind that, though? It's not like there's a lot of people flocking to theaters in these times of self-isolation and quarantine. Well, I mean, that's just it. I guess AMC was not really raising an eyebrow about it because most of the theaters are closed. But the moment he said, even after the quarantine and self-isolation ends, this is going to be the new business model. Oh, I missed that bit. I can totally see why that would be the case and why AMC theaters would react that way. I mean, you're essentially cutting right into their profit margins. They're, they're not going to want that. Oh, yeah. They're not going to want that. And, of course, this fight prompted a response from NATO, of all things. NATO? Yeah. You know, the National Association of Theater Owners. Oh. What were you thinking of? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, you mean that, NATO? I get you now. But yeah, the National Association of Theater Owners, they came out and was, well, we are siding with AMC in this dispute because this was only a successful model for the release of Trolls World Tour because the audiences had no other choice. If given the choice, every audience member will always pick the enjoyment of the theater experience over streaming the video in their own home. And here's the thing what I have to say about that. I wouldn't say every audience member would opt to go to the theater versus staying in their comfort in their homes and renting or purchasing a movie. I would say that there's going to be a good percentage of people that will do that because it'll be way cheaper than to take the kids out to the theater, for example. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially on these more kid-focused movies. Okay, so for example, Fast 9 is a universal movie. Yeah. So in theory, under this quote-unquote new policy, Fast 9 would be simultaneously released in the theater and at home Mm -hmm. and i could imagine most people who are fans of fast nine will still choose to go to the theater to see that movie yes you're going to that movie probably with date with your partner spouse or just paying for your own ticket as you go and hang out with all of your friends that's going to be a theater experience yes but if it comes to twenty dollars for a an animated family movie yeah twenty dollars that's That's a deal. That's cheap for a full family experience. I can see it not for all movies and not for all audiences. I think that it's going to be a small percentage of people that end up staying and watching these movies 
on the comfort of their own home versus going to going to the movie theaters. I don't think it's going to be that big of a number, but I think that it's still a significant enough number for AMC theaters to be concerned about. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Yeah. I wonder if NATO has its own Twitter account <laughs> that we can follow. Maybe. So we can which follow us on our Twitter account at Streaming Geek. Yes. And on Facebook at Streaming Thoughts Podcast. Another thing that came up in the virtual realm of nerds talking about nerdy things uh it was stated that in spider-man 3 he would be represented by a famous mcu lawyer but then more details of the netflix deal was revealed and mcu couldn't bring charlie cox into the mcu films and did they explain why that was well it was because there was a two-year limit on when netflix released the last season before that character could be used again in the mcu okay two years right so generally speaking with the original plan for spider-man there's talk of a she-hulk disney plus show and she-hulk is a lawyer so it's probably just she-hulk well spider-man being delayed no filming or production having been started yet that contract is going to expire is going to actually open up the window for daredevil to be in spider-man 3 wow so people started speculating on this and they want a famous mcu lawyer wouldn't it be better if it was the most famous? Well, not to mention the fact that when you think about the type of attorneys that the Parker family can afford. Yeah. <laughs> everybody thinks, oh, they're probably rolling on all that Stark money. Probably not. Probably not. If you think about where they're at, what kind of income this family has, hiring... Matt Murdock. Yeah, hiring Matt Murdock is probably going to be a little bit more affordable for the family than to hire someone like uh, Jared Hogarth. Right. Or anyone else that's more prestigious. The funny thing is, movie insider Kevin Smith picked up on these rumors, and he made a little vlog talking about how cool it would be to see Matt Murdock representing Peter Parker. Yeah, and here's the thing. From what I know about Charlie Cox, he absolutely wants to come back and play this character. He has expressed on multiple locations how he would absolutely love to be part of the MCU and, and be in the films. The really fun part is, because Kevin Smith came out and said it would be really cool, he was responding to internet rumor sites. And then all of those same internet rumor sites took what he said as, quote, confirmation that Matt Murdock is going to be in Spider-Man 3. That is hilarious. Don't lose hope. If you remember, a number of years ago, there was a boardroom that someone made a joke about a movie called Snakes on a Plane. And that joke leaked out onto the internet and became more popular than any movie that that studio was actually producing, that they actually made that movie. They actually had to go back and re-film part of the movie just to include one famous line that I'm not going to say because, you know, you'll bleep me again. <laughs> so that entire movie was dictated and controlled by the fans demanding it get recognition. They haven't finished the script for Spider-Man 3 yet. They aren't starting to film. If there's enough internet uh, faith and demand for Charlie Cox to be Daredevil, it could still happen. Absolutely. I think... Yeah, we also have to remember that this is Marvel we're talking about, and they have done a lot of things in the last year that we never thought were going to be possible or that we were ever going to see on screen. Spider-Man, for instance, is one of those. I mean, if you would have told me that at some point 
Spider-Man was going to steal Captain America's shield in a Captain America movie, I would have been like, you're crazy. Get out of here. That's never going to happen. And it happened. And it was really cool. And so Charlie Cox coming into the MCU in any future properties, whether it be Spider-Man 3 or something else, is not going to surprise me. And it's obviously going to be a really welcome thing by all fans. And to quote Charlie Cox, because some pe- he was doing a live streaming event and some people asked him if he was truly going to be in Spider-Man 3. His response was, if they've already decided for Daredevil to be in Spider-Man 3, it's probably not going to be me because nobody's asked me for it yet. Which would be really sad if that were the case, because Charlie Cox is Daredevil in my mind, and a lot of people feel the same way. I expect to see Daredevil in the MCU further at some point in the future. If he gets recast, I'll be disappointed, yeah. but either way... It'd be fun to see it anyway. We recently did a public showing of today's topic using the Chrome extension Netflix Party. Yeah, and that was for the film Snowpiercer. We figured this would be a good one to do because possibly the around the same time we release this episode, or maybe a little bit before, you should be able to tune in to TNT for the premiere of the Snowpiercer TV show. Yes, which I'm very much looking forward to and seeing what kind of direction they take and the similarities and differences between that and the movie. And for anyone who is listening that happened to have been following us on our facebook and twitter account i personally had a lot of fun with our little live viewing event there's a couple people in the chat who were streaming their thoughts to us over what they thought of the movie as it progressed and i thought that was a lot of fun yeah if you missed that well be sure to follow us on facebook and twitter so that you know you can see when the next time we do such an event is and join us absolutely yeah, it's a great extension. It's a great way to interact with followers and, you know, just kind of have a lot of fun. So definitely keep an eye out for that. So, Dan, what are your thoughts on Snowpiercer? Oh, man, I have a lot of thoughts on this movie. So I saw this film originally back in 2014. I didn't actually see it in theaters. I think that this movie had a very limited release. It wasn't very widely advertised. I didn't really hear about it to be honest, until it was already out for rent on or to buy digitally. So that was around the time that I watched it. And plus, you know, this was also around the time when, you know, Chris Evans is at the peak. I think this was right around the time of Captain America, the Winter Soldier. So again, Chris Evans had this aura of fame around him that anything that he touched, you know, people were immediately drawn to it, right? And so, and but it wasn't just him. I mean, there was a bunch of other people in this movie that a lot of other seasoned actors have made this movie a lot of fun to watch too. It was just a really good production. It's a Korean film, by the way. It is the, actually, to this date, it remains one of the most expensive Korean productions ever, coming in at around $40 million. It was, again, supposed to be a very limited release, and then they expanded the show into other movie theaters, and it's just a fantastic film about a train that travels the world that carries the last remains of humanity in an attempt to fix the environment we made it worse. But thanks to the train, we stayed alive. Man, th- those chemtrails, you, you cannot trust the jets leaving those chemtrails in the sky. Put on your tinfoil hat, people. That was my first thought. I was like, oh no, this is going to make it so much worse for those people who already believe in those chemtrails, man. <laughs> Everybody's just going to be like, see, I knew it. They're talking about it. See, they're putting it into movies to try and make you less likely to believe the truth. <laughs> it's all a big conspiracy. Right? Exactly. Snowpiercer, French graphic novel, 
adapted for the screen. I believe it was his first English movie that Korean director uh, Bong Joon-ho decided to do. Yeah. Mostly English brew on it. I think mostly American, actually. Were there? Interesting. I've heard of this director before. I've known of some of his properties. I think The Host is a very popular movie of his. And then there is uh, obviously Snowpiercer. There's another film on Netflix called Okja, which is another another one of his productions that I've I, it's on my list. I've been meaning to watch it, just haven't had a chance to see it. And then the last movie that it should be more familiar to people because it's more recent is Parasite. Yeah. So yeah, it's certainly an international collaboration to get this film to us. You know, it's a really dark film. It's depressing. <laughs> you know, it's there's not a whole lot of bright, beautiful moments in this film. It's a lot of dystopia and, and all that stuff. But it was beautifully written, incredibly well acted, and... It had a, an amazing pace to it. It was like a ride, and they did a great job with that. Okay, jumping into the dark and depressing aspect of this film with very few bright moments. I'm going to jump right to the end. That final scene where the two characters walk out of the snow and they look at the polar bear. There was a disagreement in the writers of the film. What was that? What was the disagreement? Bong Joon-ho was a writer and director on this. Kelly Masterson was a co-writer on it. Mm -hmm. And from what I heard, Bong Joon-ho wanted the scene to kind of represent they're stepping out into the great world. Humanity is going to survive and it's going to learn from its mistakes and everything is pristine and ready to be rebuilt and reset. While Kelly Masterson's uh, view at the end was, yep, everybody dies. They're going to freeze to death. They're not going to have any food. It's the end of all humanity. It's a dark dystopian apocalyptic film. That should happen more often in films, basically. Here's the thing. One of those endings is definitely more bright endings, a hope for humanity and all that kind of stuff. The other one is what realistically would have happened. We're talking about a 17-year-old girl who knows nothing about the outside world and a five-year-old kid who knows even less. And somehow they're supposed to survive out in the worst, harshest environment. Somehow they're supposed to make it. I think the movie ended in that way that kind of let you think maybe they will survive and they will make it. And the whole world will begin anew. Or they were going to die. The polar bear is going to kill them. I was going to say, you, you have two ways to look at that. They step out into that snow and they see the polar bear and go, you know what? Other life can survive on this planet. So can humans. That will be fine. And you can be very helpful. And otherwise, you can look at it and be like, that polar bear is looking at them going, ooh, yeah, free food. I have eaten people in forever. I think that there is a way that the movie was set where you could interpret it one of two ways. I think the tonality of the ending definitely leaned more towards its bright, beautiful future for the species. We're going to make it. It's going to be just fine, you guys. Don't even worry about it. The ending of the movie, you have your glass of water. Is it half full or half empty? And based on your outlook of life, you're going to make your own call on that one. Yeah, it was definitely a little bit more open to interpretation, even though, again, the tonality of the film suggested more that this was a positive ending. It's not like they have to leave the train immediately. I mean, they can still use the train for some form of shelter, and there's probably other people that actually survived that crash. I mean, not a lot, because that was a big wreck. I mean, that was insane. The first time... I watched this movie, I thought, oh, a good amount of people made it. That was my thinking. My second time watching it, I actually kept 
a good close eye on how many cars were destroyed. And a lot of them were destroyed. I want to say 80% of the cars in that train were destroyed, save for the first three cars. That was the engine and then the, the next two cars. That was it. Besides that, everything else behind it was either thrown off cliffs or buried under the snow. And don't forget, a lot of people over the course of this movie has already been culled. With Wilfred's need to call 74% of the uh, train population after only 17 years to avoid mass starvation and overcrowding, it kind of tells you that this train was getting onto its last legs already because 17 years is not enough time to have mass overpopulation of new people i mean just think about what amount of resources you would need in order to maintain peace and order right i mean you need so much stuff to do that and the train never stops right it's been running continuously for 17 years 24 7 wilford said that the engine was designed to live and last forever and it never really went into detail as far as what kind of technology was being used as far as the engine is concerned. All we know is from the words of Wilford that the engine is supposed to last forever. The engine was eternal. The engine was, it was never going to run out of power, but the parts to transfer the energy of the engine to the rest of the train wore out and needed to be replaced is how he broke it down. Well, here's the thing about that, because I want to be very clear, and this will tie to another point that we're going to bring later down in the in the podcast. He said that some of the parts need maintenance, right? But some parts that were used for the engine, his words were, recently became extinct. Yeah. And that, to me, is the thing that's been bothering me this whole time. Is Why did he use that word? Not, we ran out of this replacement product. Not, we're no longer able to manufacture this replacement product. No, no. This part of the engine recently went extinct i mean if you go to your car dealership or your auto repair shop they're not going to use those words when describing parts about cars that have gone out of manufacturing or anything like that you're never going to hear you know your mechanic saying oh yeah that that part recently went extinct i'm looking for uh this board game i heard was really popular that's like oh no that's out of print they don't say oh no sorry that board game's now extinct exactly but yeah so i mean the train itself sounds like he came up with some sort of fancy perpetual motion machine that just needs to be maintained and run by certain people in order to continue to move the train along. There's like three types of perpetual energy machines out there. It falls into one of three categories, all of which break the laws of thermodynamics. The ones that produce more energy than they need to keep moving. Ones that produce only the energy they need to keep moving so there's no gain or loss of energy and then there's the ones who draw their energy from a static field like you remember your middle school science teacher talking about the the toy car at the top of the hill you need that difference from the top to the bottom in order to draw up the energy to make that toy car move i want to say he had the first type because it needed to produce enough energy to keep itself moving and produce the additional energy to move the train. It kind of was illustrated by the fact that the train never stops and it can't stop, right? It has to keep moving. Yes. If the train stops, then... We all freeze and die. Yeah, we all freeze and die. See, it definitely gives a sense that they can't even stop the train for brief periods of time. If 
once a train got moving, it had to keep moving. If it stopped for any reason, it would never start up again. Right. But like you said, that also goes ties back into you can't do that forever, right? There has to come a point where something is going to break. It may not be the engine. It may be something else. Nothing lasts forever. At some point, this was going to fail. This was going to end. And obviously, Wilford didn't want to accept it, didn't want to think about that, and wanted to make sure that he, he did whatever it took to keep the train moving. Speaking of uh, nothing lasts forever, so they went through the meat car. The butcher? Yeah, it had the size of beef hanging. It had all those chickens lining the wall. Did we ever come across the car where they're growing the massive amounts of corn or the breeding chickens and cows to maintain that that meat locker right i don't think we did i know that the train is supposed to be 60 cars long yes that was supposed to have been confirmed by the director so there's definitely room for it we just never went through the farm car i mean they did go through a hydroponics car but that was that wasn't producing the the types of grains and such you would need for livestock no like lettuce and fruits and vegetables and apparently Every year on New Year's Day, they all get eggs as a special treat. So yeah, and that was a lot of eggs. It was. Although to be fair, those eggs were there to conceal the semi-automatic weapons that they were hiding under there. So that's probably why they had a lot of them. Which comes to another point. At that time, they had the semi-automatic weapons that were fully armed and equipped. Mm-hmm. But before that. None of the guns had any bullets. Well, here's what I think about that. I think that you have 17 years have gone by, essentially, from when the train started running to when the revolution that Curtis led happened. And we know there was at least one before that. From what I remember, I think they mentioned four total revolutions have happened in the 17 years or 18 years. So four total revolutions. I remember they mentioned that this was not the first time there was a revolution. Them only really calling out one specific revolution, which was the revolution of the seven, which was, I think, five years in where they tried to get off the train. Right. And froze maybe 100 feet from the tracks. Right. Exactly. So what I think happened is in the first revolution, they, they had plenty of bullets. But by the third revolution, they probably lost a lot of bullets, which is obviously shown. Right. And so I think that all bullets didn't go extinct. I think that they kept just enough amount for this emergency, right? For like, if there's another revolution happening, we will be able to hold them off from this point on because we only have enough bullets. But here's the thing, right? This is it. I think that, that these are the last bullets left. Yeah, possibly. So if Curtis had failed, then obviously the next revolution would have absolutely had been way more successful. Also, way to go on referring to running out of bullets as bullets going extinct. I want to take it on a little bit of a different conspiracy thought. I think he specifically withdrew the bullets because in the end, we find out who was passing the pill messages through the food all this time. Mm, so you think it was Wilford all along just kind of giving the illusion so that Curtis would be worthy enough to reach him. From his speech at the end, I don't think he was expecting Curtis to reach the front of the train. I think he was just expecting Curtis to reach the... The, the water facility? Hold up. Take control of the water facility, demand some sort of changes or improve living conditions, and withdraw his revolution at that point. It's like, oh, they've they've lost so many lives, they've cost them so much, 
this will make them fall back at this point. They'll, this will break their revolution. He didn't expect Curtis to keep coming. Mm, wow. You know, because when you really think about it, I think Curtis and the people in the back were fully prepared to lay down their lives for this revolution to the point that they were going to do whatever it took to get to the front. So I was kind of under the impression that he probably withheld the bullets for some time from those guards. I mean, they probably knew that they didn't have any bolts in their guns as he was preparing for this. And it wasn't until after Curtis kept pushing forward that he was like, okay. Maybe we should start shooting people. Now, now I need <laughs> now I need to truly test him. Does he really have the resolve to get to the front of this train? And that's when he authorized the release of the bullets. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. That in terms of him instigating the revolution to begin with, making sure that the soldiers wouldn't kill people at the back i can see it i can see it all being a very calculated move right up until curtis decided to keep moving forward obviously at the very beginning because i knew there was past revolutions and the first time the bullets were empty my thought was oh they don't have a way to manufacture new bullets bullets don't last forever they must have run out on the past engagements but then when the bullets showed up i'm like oh i see they were saving their bullets to protect the higher critical areas and then you get to the final reveal over who was behind the whole thing. It's like, no, this was just to make sure that they could have a starting chance to start the revolution. Yeah. And that makes sense when you see how calculating Wilford is as a character. Yeah. He talked about percentages a lot, kind of informed about his state of mind and why he decided to do that. Before we jump into what I really wanted to talk about, I do want to point out that the characters and the actors in this film did an amazing job. If you ever want to see a solid confirmation that Chris Evans is a fantastic actor who can do a lot more than just be Captain America, the range he brought into this film, man, what range? I mean, it was so it was so great. I absolutely enjoyed his performance in this movie. Yes. He wasn't the irresponsible playboy of Fantastic Four. He wasn't the Boy Scout of Captain America. He was a broken, flawed individual that just was trying to survive in a better condition than what fate had thrown him into. Absolutely. Definitely. And Tilda Swinton. Oh. What a chameleon. It took me a while. I didn't I didn't immediately recognize her as the actor that she is until I went to the IMDb page and looked up, who is this character? Yeah, and it's freaking Tilda Swinton. And we're talking, obviously, about Minister Mason. What an amazing performance of that, too. I mean, she she really transformed. Oh, yeah. And by the way, when, when I saw this performance, you know the other actor that is on the same level who can just transform in a similar way? Gary Oldman. Oh, yeah. He's done a lot of that. And... They disappear in the, into the role. Honestly, in this case, I think Tilda Swinton did a little bit better. Because usually when I see Gary Oldman, I, I see, oh, there's Gary Oldman. Yeah. And in this case, I was like, wow, who is this fantastic actor? Oh. It's Tilda Swinton. Of course, she's a fantastic actor. Yeah. And also, I would like to say huge, giant, amazing props to the makeup department because they did an amazing job with their character. Although, she must really hate dentists. <laughs> Probably. I mean, you, you see her and it looks like she, she has some rotted teeth, which... You, Kind of thinking, okay, this makes sense. It's not exactly they have access to dentists. And then it turns out that she has rotted dentures. Yeah. And again, you're like, okay, well, she's getting by with whatever she came on the train with. 
And then they're going through the one car where they show they still have active dentistry. Right. And it's like, why are you not going there? You're the minister. <laughs> you're, you're the minister of the train. You should be having access to this dentistry and keeping your pearly white smile. <laughs> yeah, you should you should have amazing teeth. What are you doing? All right. So I do want to bring up the topic here that I wanted to discuss for this and I wanted to have a conversation on, which is online, a few years after the movie was released, there was this guy on YouTube who made a video about this whole thing called this uh, the Wonka piercer or what what is it called? Okay, so about five years after the movie came out, a comedian, uh, Kevin Mayer, released a little video vlog saying that... Snowpiercer was beat for beat, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not the Johnny Depp version, but the original Gene Wilder version. He did the comparison saying, this is just a dark remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right. And about a year after that, a YouTuber that goes by the name of Rhino Stew picked up on that and said, no, 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 this isn't a remake. This is a sequel. Right. And here's the thing. I don't usually go for a lot of film conspiracy theories or connections that people have made in the past. I mean, there's some notable exceptions like the Pixar one, which makes sense when you think about it because it's one studio that has made all of these movies and it makes sense that they're all, that they're all interconnected. This one, though, it was laid down really, really well. Some of the points were a bit of a stretch. I'll cope to that. But there was a follow-up video that another YouTuber posted that went in into even more detail on other details throughout the film that also tied it back to the Wonkaverse. Was that the Nomadic Kong one? That was the Nomadic, yes, that, that was that. Particularly for that video, what I enjoyed was the music and how the soundtrack and the score was used as another indication, yeah. connection to Willy Wonka, which I thought was just really clever. It's stuff like this that you can say, okay, this can't be a coincidence. Very least, a lot of this stuff was inspired by Willy Wonka. So you have Rhino Shoes theory, and then, and then you have the Nomadic Hong who goes into just way, way too deep of uh, detail to find additional connections and tie-ins between the two. Yeah. But the one thing that is probably the most pressing, and we've already mentioned it once, as to how this kind of makes sense is that one line, that part recently went extinct. I know. I can't get that out of my head. It's been stuck in my head since I saw the movie. Yeah, you, you go back to old Willy Wonka and he created impossible things. Yeah. The four-course meal inside of a bubble gum that makes you blow up like a blueberry. The being able to not only transport someone through TV, but to put them in a taffy machine to stretch them out without killing them. <laughs> right. You know, after Charlie Bucket became his heir, he would have taught him his impossible invention techniques mm -hmm. the invention of a eternal perpetual motion energy that fits within the wonka universe is something that wonka and the person he passes his knowledge off to could potentially do yeah but all of his stuff all of his crazy things were always operated by the oompa loompas who are they four feet somewhere around that pretty short you know the what you would look for in a five-year-old kid yeah Exactly. And that to me was a part of the movie that really connected with that theory of interconnecting these two movies because of that very specific choice of word. You can't write for that to describe a mechanical piece. I was even looking. Did Bong have 
an interview or some sort of news article out there. I was looking for it and I could not find it, but I was like, was he thinking these were like that this train was operated by cats or gerbils running on a wheel or something? I I kept looking for that connection. Yeah, because you have to think about this is not just to keep the engine running. We're talking about way before the train even took off. This is how it was designed with that height clearance in mind. Most human adults are not that height. Right. So why would you build a train, design an engine with that height clearance in mind? To begin with, something that not an average person can go in there and repair. Why would you build it that way? Yeah, I have to say, I mean, every other aspect of that theory, Minister Mason is actually Baruch Assault. The assistant that would fetch the kids was Augustus Goop's daughter. Right. The uh, silent killer that ultimately uh, killed Gillian was Mike TV. Right. All these other aspects. They were like, sure, okay. That's neat. That's clever. But that one line of that part went extinct. It requires someone that small to be in there. It's like, it's the one thing that I can't explain away and I cannot find anything to disprove why that line was used. Yeah, exactly. To go back to the fact that why would he design a train with those dimensions to begin with? There's a lot of connections. Some are very strong, like the extinct one and the music one. I think those are very strong connections to the Wonkaverse. And then there's some really super weak ones, like characters and you know assignments uh, that they are connections rather between the Wonka character and then the Snowpiercer characters. I think some of them, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really see it. That not, it could go either way. But when you see the movie through the lens of oh my God, is this really a Wonka sequel? All of a sudden, this movie becomes even darker. (laughs) Right? It's like, oh, so Charlie grew up. He took on the name Wilford Wonka instead of, you know, Willy Wonka and carried on his legacy. One aspect of that theory is that maybe Charlie, a.k.a. Wilford, is the one who invented the CW7 gas and then realized, oh, no, it's going to be too powerful. This is not a good idea. We, I need to stop this. Oh, I can't stop this. All right, next option, build the impossible train. Right, which, again, kind of informs in the movie because in, in the movie, Wilford was seen sort of as a prophet almost. Right. And then you're wondering, wait, why? how did he know that this was going to be a world-ending catastrophe? Could it be because he invented the damn thing and that's why you know he knew? Yeah. Maybe. Because I I have to say, you can't be that prophetic without knowing intimate details about this program. This isn't just he built a train. He built a vastly over-engineered train that was designed to never stop. So once people got on it, they would always be on it. And he had to build tracks that circled the globe. You don't start building an endless train that will never stop, never let anybody off of it if you're expecting, you know, sunshine and sunny weather every other day. Not to mention the fact that I think he built that all under the pretense of sort of an experience, right? It was supposed to be a tourism thing. He definitely had the idea that it was going to, that something was coming and he had to have some sort of insider knowledge on it. It's a fun headcanon. It is. It is. Whether the theory is true or not, I am choosing to see this film through the lens of the of, of Snowpiercer taking place in the Wonkaverse. I think it makes it darker, and I think it makes it cooler. The fact that all of these characters grew up to just get real messed up and 
do some real messed up stuff to other people and again it just makes it a lot more creepy too that's another thing so do you think the tnt show is gonna carry on those wonka vibes here's the thing from what i've researched and found on the tnt show i think that what they are doing is they are sort of rebooting the narrative a bit i know the tnt when they have it as a thousand and one cars the upper class passengers or they bought the tickets with the idea that he was going to build this train for them some rich entrepreneur sold the idea of saving humanity from a cataclysm that was coming that all the rich people were putting their money into. So I think it's going to be a departure from the film, definitely. Also, in addition to that, the TV series is supposed to start at around the seven-year mark since the catastrophe happened, as opposed to the film, which was 17 years. Now, on the uh, ice melting every year, revealing more and more of the plane, and the very opening scene, you can see it in the trailers for the TV show too, so they're going to keep this as a punishment, where they put the guy's arm in that little socket and shoved it out of the train. That's another thing. That train wall was built with that functionality in. Whoa. You're right. It's like, oh, man, Mr. Wilford may be prophetic, but he is not a nice guy. (laughs) No, Mr. Wilford is, uh, yeah, he's he's got some psychopathic tendencies. Let's just uh, put it that way. Oh, that scene at the very beginning did make me wonder, like, how cold would it have to be to freeze an arm solid like that in seven minutes? So it's not just how cold it is outside. It's also the fact that the train is moving. You have the wind chill factor. If the outside conditions are basically Antarctic conditions dropping down to negative 40 degrees Celsius or or Fahrenheit, because negative 40 is the same as Celsius and Fahrenheit, by the way. If it's getting that cold and the train's only going around 40 miles per hour, sticking his arm out there would be exposing it not to negative 40 temperatures, but around negative 115 to negative 150 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really cold. That's crazy cold. So yeah, that could freeze someone's arm and do a lot of damage in a very short amount of time. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is back to the the trailers for the TNT premiere. She is doing this morning announcement and she announces how long they've been going. And she announces what the temperature is outside. The temperature she announces outside is actually right in that range of what the wind chill temperature would be. Hmm. That is something I'm kind of curious about is they would obviously would know you you put a a temperature probe outside, you're going to be measuring the wind chill temperature, not the ambient temperature. Right. And you wouldn't really be able to get the ambient temperature because you're moving of the train never stopping. Yeah. Are they lying to everybody? Are they purposefully inflating how cold it is outside of the train in order to keep people controlled you see i thought that at first i thought that there might have been a possibility that wilford had been lying this whole time but when you see the outside world in those little moments that that we get you do end up seeing quite a bit of destruction thanks to ice yeah so i want to say that it was probably extremely cold to begin with, but over time, the effects of CW7 weren't going to last as long. Now, how long that it took for the temperatures to sort of come back to where humanity can survive outside? I think that probably happened way before 17 years went by. I think that happened 
maybe year three or year seven. So it'll be interesting to figure out in the TV series if they go the route of, oh my God, they've been lying to us this whole time. It's actually not as cold outside. Let's revolt. Don't trust the guy who says his position of uh, privilege and authority is just as bad as the people crammed in the back eating insect protein blocks. Because I mean, after all, he has to be next to the loud engine. Oh, yeah. When he's complaining about how it's too loud up at the front. But what about, But you think you've endured hell. I have to stay here with this loud engine. I couldn't even hear myself think. As you can tell, I am shouting at you over the noise. Yeah, we're not sitting in a quiet, peaceful room of comfort and relaxation. It's, it's really loud up here, I, I swear. <laughs> Not a compelling argument. <laughs> no, I was so angry throughout that whole that that whole argument. You, you get to this, you get to this final spot, and all it is is the director and screenwriters trying to figure out the best way to just exposition dump on the audience to tell them everything that you don't know yet. And it's it's always awkward, and it it doesn't work well. If you wanted to give this dark final finish, you know where like. All all of humanity is probably dead. I would really have ended the movie immediately after Chris Evans does his confession. Never let him reach the engine. Really? Yeah. Huh. Maybe, maybe I'm a pessimist, but yeah, you know, I like the the darkness of the movie and the futility of it all was the parts that really stood out to me. Even through that final engine scene, you could have cut the movie at that point that he never is able to get past that final door and he gives this confession. That would have really highlighted all the futility, all the darkness of this movie and worked just fine for me for an end for this film. All right. I will disagree with that. I would have liked a little bit of a happier ending. Just a bit happier than that. Doesn't have to be like, and he lived happily ever after. He found the love of his life and everything worked out. But, you know, just something a little bit more than that. A a little bit happier. They find the missing five-year-old in that room and not in the engine room. And they pull the door and jump out. And And rode that polar bear into the sunset. (laughs) Maybe. All right. Should we get to our TLDL? Too long, didn't listen. All right, Nathan. What are your final thoughts on Snowpiercer? It has its moments of levity and humor, uh, especially the classroom scene, which I, we didn't really get to too much. And I kind of wish we talked a bit more about that. But pardon the pun. It rides the train of emotions fairly well to take you up to they're succeeding, they're failing. They're succeeding, they're failing. They're, it, it's a bright and happy day. It's a gruesome nightmare. They ride that through the entire film. And overall, it's an enjoyable movie. If you haven't seen it, by all means, check it out. If you have seen it, you have to be like me and looking forward to the TNT premiere of Snowpiercer TV show. Yeah, and my thoughts on it, it was an absolute amazing movie. It's a really good experience. Like I mentioned earlier, it was sort of a ride. You know, you kind of went along for the ride, which is which is really great. The performances of, of Chris Evans, uh, of uh, Song Kang-ho, of Tilda Swinton, Octavia Spencer... Again, just an amazing cast with amazing performance. One thing I will mention about this film, it is quite violent. If you're not the type of person that likes really violent films, I would read up a little bit more on that before you decide to jump into it. Just a little bit of a warning on that. But if you're fine, definitely check it out. And if you already have, as Nathan said, I think that the TV series is going to get some curiosity for me to check out the first couple episodes just to see how it is and we didn't even get to octavia spencer today two movies in a row where she was a prominent character and did a great job 
But final question to leave you with, Dan. Train to survive the apocalypse? Doesn't seem like a good plan. How would you survive the apocalypse? I wouldn't. But we would love to hear how you would survive. You can hit us up on Facebook at Streaming Thoughts Podcast. And you can hit us up on Twitter at Streaming Geek. So thank you all for listening. This has been Daniel. And this has been Ethan. Thank Thank you for for listening. listening.